Welcome to On Resistance Radio. We are a horizontal radio collective on KPFK 90.7. You can catch our shows every Friday except for the first Friday of the month at 7.30 p.m. except for during Fun Drive. Today we are going to be talking about hegemony and we have a guest here today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Alexander Vogel. I'm very interested in theories of, um, I guess you could say, the political left and the various manifestations that has taken place from from whether it's a, a Marxist perspective, anarchist perspective, even the sort of post-structuralist perspective, because even the postmodernists and the post-structuralists take a lot from the left and a lot of them were, you know, party members or, or affiliated in some in some way. And so um, I'm very interested in, in, in the sort of intellectual history, if you will, of, of, of those ideas. Great. Thank you for joining us. So we're just kind of going to jump in how we usually do, which is how do we define hegemony? How do you how do you feel about hegemony personally before we kind of get into the um, historical background mm-hmm. of it? With my own perceptions as well as you know, being informed by the various theories and theorizations of it, you know, hegemony is just one of those words that entail a lot in, in any kind of politics. Anywhere from international relations has an idea of what hegemony is, which is just sort of the, the, the dominating power overall. That's the sort of international relations sort of theorization and definition of it. In terms of political theory, it has kind of, and especially sort of more left-oriented political theory has t- kind of taken a life on its own and was kind of rethought by uh, an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci, who is most known for his work while in an Italian prison called the Prison Notebooks. He was arrested in the 20s during Mussolini's uh, rule. And so he was just kind of trying to, he was trying to formulate a new way of thinking about power as well as trying to write and get past the censors. So there's a combination of a pragmatism as well as formulating sort of, you know, new, newer, newish ideas about something called hegemony. And so for him, hegemony was not just simply a dominating power or dominating bloc or the bourgeois or things like that, but that you had contestation and, and, and contention either through, you know, government and, and the governed or even within other sorts of organizations, if you will. Um, so, so to him, hegemony was also not just trying to sort of develop consent, you know, vis-a-vis the, the state and, and the people, but that the people in themselves are also in this kind of cycle of, of contention, kind of struggling for hegemony too, a hegemony of ideas. And so to me, hegemony is, 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 is a kind of constant, you know, politics of position, you know, and, and trying to, you know, find ways into how, how do you kind of bring in others without sort of sort of falling into vanguardism because I guess Gramsci too was kind of, you know, dissolution with the sort of Bolshevik revolution and, and things going on in the, in the Soviet Union. So there, there was that to contend with that, you know, can, can there be a hegemonic framework without it being fully a, you know, coercive thing via the state, nor something led by something like vanguardism or Leninism? When I think of hegemony, yeah, it brings up you know, how do we analyze the power dynamics that exist and kind of draw conclusions about structural power Mm -hmm. versus like personal feelings about relationships. Although, you know, it does, social position does play into power structures. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of systems of hierarchy and how how does that kind of relate 
to building hegemony. And obviously, I feel like it can be helpful to find words to name the power structures. And, you know, I think there is that among leftists in general, there is that tension of how to fight absolute power without replicating Mm -hmm. absolute power. Mm -hmm. And so kind of trying to look at how hegemony gives us a framework of the the problem, but how does that relate to like our own practices and our movements um, now and mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of wanting to break down hegemony too and decentralize the idea mm-hmm. to make it mm-hmm. more accessible and really kind of, you know, what are example talking about what later, what are mm-hmm. examples of hegemony today? Because I think, like you said, it's multi-leveled. It can yeah. be globally mm-hmm. um, between states. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, you know, within the state domestically. How does the state organize itself? It can be even amongst the social relations within the state. Mm-hmm. So just like all the ways that structures of power have manifested. And I am interested to hear more about the idea that how do we create consent between the governed you know, and the government mm-hmm. or the state, which to me, I use the word the state to mean more than just the formal government, mm-hmm, but sure. like, you know, a system of social relations, mm-hmm. um, including like organizations like the police, mm-hmm. who people, people don't consider the police the government, but right. if you actually look at their actual role on the street, you know, they're the, they're the most intimate form of government that yeah, people are mean, actually yeah. interacting with. Yeah. And, and I think it reminds me of a, a quote by a uh, Anthropologist David Graeber, he's, he pretty much called the police bureaucrats with weapons because bureaucracy is the most immediate level of state that most people ne- negotiate with, whether it is police, whether it's DMV, whether it's all of these kind of formal realms of administration. To me, that's, that's that, like you said, it's the most immediate understanding or negotiating of, of, of the state. And I think that's something to contend with because I think when it comes to theories of, of hegemony, especially when it, when it comes to both Gramsci as well as some theoreticians that would kind of push Gramsci a little further, like uh, Ernesto Laclau and, and his former partner, uh, Chantal Mouffe. Well, Laclau passed away a year ago, so, and they were never formally married, but, you know, all those terms. But anyways, so I can't at least say that she's a widow, but, you know, but anyways, that's beside the point. The point is, what they accounted for was a certain kind of high politics within, within the, the, the level of the social, or even more important to them, the, the level of the popular, meaning populism was something to kind of take seriously, and and why did Leclerc want to take that seriously? A, um, he was Argentinian, so you have these this major populist movement, uh, Peronism, in the uh, between sort of in the interwar period up to the postwar period, and also known uh, uh, his his wife Eva Peron was also another figure in that. So Leclerc saw that Peronism was a kind of very strange amalgamation of left right politics in that it wasn't fully you know, fascist or far right, but nor was it, you know, left as a sort of, you know, Leninist party. So for Leclerc, it seemed that Peronism, because it did garner a kind of consent from a lot of people, whether whether it was just through the image of, of them and, and, and it may not necessarily represent what they actually did policy-wise, but the fact that Peron and Peronism, because there has been, you know, different, different uh, fluctuations and, and and understandings of Peronism in Argentina, it has been a sort of legitimate and legitimizing force in politics, despite the fact that, of course, there's still authoritarian tendencies, there's still, you know, a a police, there's still something called the police, there's still something called bureaucracy and and formal levels of administration that do kind of keep everyone at bay because 
at the same time, if you don't fill a form or if you don't, you know, concede to a certain kind of rule or regulation, then, you know, you could suffer some sort of consequence. But then at the same time, there is still a kind of willingness to kind of believe in, you know, believe in a kind of, if you want to say, ideology of a political framework. And I think that's where also ideology comes in, in the sense of, how it also reproduces hegemony. Because one understanding of ideology is, you know, it's a false consciousness, we're duped, and and uh, the bourgeois or the ruling class, or however you want to frame them, have the monopoly of, of violence, and, and, they, and they possess the state and all that. But then there has been another framework that Ernesto Leclerc took from, from a French Marxist theorist named uh, Louis Althusser, where ideology was equally a social relation, where what he called interpolated, which is another kind of word for, for naming, um, calling, or identifying. So subjectivity was was created through interpolating each other by both taking for granted the dominant ideology as well as trying to figure a way out of it. So for me, hegemony is still tricky because you, you, you do have people reproducing certain kinds of frameworks like, say, social movements in Latin America, Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador being three big left-oriented, I'll say left-oriented states that uh, have legitimized, you know, the, the three figures of, of Chavez, Correa, and, um, and uh, Morales. And, but yet, you know, they still exist as a nation state. They still have administrative, you know, control. They still have a police. Uh, they, they still have the police. So it's it's... It's tricky because you have to ask yourself, like, well, these social movements might have meant something, but did it just, you know, come back to just uh, back to interpolation? It's just like, well, I've named, you know, these figures as as very key players in our government. So thus am, are, are the people that that built the momentum for these social movements also just fooling themselves? And I think that's sort of the biggest question about hegemony in that way. I mean, I feel like this is like the pull between dominant leftist strains is how do we support these leaders mm-hmm. and these movements that still work within a status framework mm-hmm. that still, to some extent, there have been criticisms that, you know, they're still policing, there's mm-hmm. still protests. Mm-hmm. To me, it just brings back the idea of like, you know, there are social movements, there is populism, but then who takes ownership of that populism yeah. and yeah. who who will gain a position out of that populism? Because I do think that we have, like, consent's like a very big word mm-hmm. because the line between consent and coercion, depending on what structure you're in yeah. already, yeah. you know, the structure is going to determine your choice. Mm-hmm. And so choice is very, for a lot of us, there's not really the choice. Like if we were to choose sure. to exist in alternative mutual aid societies that didn't rely on capitalism or hierarchy, mm-hmm. we would choose to do that. Mm-hmm. But the set of social and political and economic relations that exist, the idolization of ownership of property mm-hmm. versus community really limits us from really being able to popularize how we might self-organize ourselves. But I do think it is a matter of legitimacy. And so you see this like tendency for for us to kind of delegitimize what the dominant ideology, ruling ideology, is telling us we have to buy into mm-hmm. or we have to vote for, or we mm-hmm. have to mm-hmm. um, you know accept the set of social relations that exists today. Mm-hmm. And then you see us kind of delegitimizing that but then the alternative that people provide us is, well, you have to legitimize something else. You mm-hmm. have to legitimize mm-hmm. your own institutions. 
to some extent, they're telling us we have to legitimize the social movements that we create. Mm-hmm. But there is like that trade-off because as soon as you start to legitimize, um, you know, what models are we adapting to? Because I think it isn't like a spectrum of like illegitimacy to legitimacy. There's a, a model of legitimacy and we have to adapt to that model of legitimacy to be seen and like what gets lost in that mm-hmm. adaptation. So hegemony to me is that model of what is legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. what do you have to do to be legitimate and how does that affect or limit or inhibit or encourage our movements in what shapes or what forms do our movements take? You know, this is a pretty theoretical conversation for me, (laughs) (laughs) but there are lots of ways that it actually shows up, you know, between our organizations. Like I look at the police as like one of the most legitimate organizations that exists. Mm -hmm. Like what other organization other than the police or military is able to murder people without, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without any recourse. Um, Actually, it's not just without any recourse or without any consequence. It's with the support, the full support support, of the local city government, the mayors, the politicians, Mm -hmm. the prosecutors and the the state. So it's not just that this is happening and they have legitimacy. They have legitimacy because they can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. Basically the law does not apply to them. The law only applies to policing. Mm -hmm. To me, like in so many social relations, hegemony would and legitimacy would recreate itself according to spectrums of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speak on Afro-pessimism, but, <laughs> you know, there is theories about the economy being built on anti-blackness mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how, you know, you can't really create a liberatory hegemony mm-hmm. if the hegemony is determined by anti-blackness or white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just kind of like looking at even theory itself, how it the production of knowledge can be. Mm-hmm. Um, limiting or have barriers mm-hmm. or right, and I think that's that's sort of a, whether it's between social movements or organizations, and then, like you said, another force, be it you know the the police and things like that. I think that's also where there's you know a bit of a bit of a challenge because it, it seems that also you know movements want to feel secure, movements want to you know again build legitimacy, build consent, build these kinds of potentially al- uh, either alternative frameworks or a framework within a system that's well recognized, but then. At the same time, you still have coercive forces ready to kind of uh, sort of dominate or resist that that sort of, of movements, which you do see, you know, um, whether it's Latin America or you saw in, in Greece a few years ago or, you know, or even in, say, insurgencies that have taken place, whether it's in, in central India with the Maoists or whether it's in the Philippines with the Maoists or... or or, um, or the recent, or not too recent, but but the end of the Maoist insurgency in Nepal, which it was really the first time that a Maoist organization would concede to parliamentary politics. I mean, they won the majority at the time in 2008. They're no longer the majority, haven't been for almost, you know, five years now. But at the same time, is it just because, you know, you have to be subsumed in order to be legitimate or is the way out a constant cycle of violence, which you do see in, in India and the Philippines and other insurgencies across the world, which do serve as a kind of quasi-state functions and things like that. So there's another, that's another way of building legitimacy, if you will. But yet a lot of people are also between the police and the insurgent group. So, you know, not every insurgent group is created equal. And, and I think that also creates a real major problem in, you know, how we think about struggle if, say, those that are caught in the middle of it, like saying, you know, the Adivasis, the indigenous people in, in central India are kind of caught in between these two groups, the police and, and the Maoists. And yet it's like, well, we just kind of want to 
live. We don't want to deal with these two groups that are supposedly advocating for our safety and even, you know, potentially freedom. And so I think that's a big dilemma that also, you know, social groups face too, depending on their their kind of praxis is, you know, first you kind of have to garner hegemony for an understanding of what the movement's about. And then if a certain praxis is like, say, armed struggle with certain insurgent groups, then you're going to be caught in between like who should become sympathetic or, or an actual member of the group. And then the risk of, again, back to the police with, you know, giving them all the justification to be aggressive and violent. And I guess for for me, and, and the, re- the reason I bring that up is because it's, it's part of that, you know, hegemonic framework, because you do have different political identities or at least cultural identities that perhaps might be receptive to, whether it's insurgent groups or social movements, but then you also have those that are not. And so the question becomes, well, are they all under false consciousness and they need to sort of, I guess, learn, if you will, like a sort of vanguard position, or is it just, you know, do you completely leave it alone? And I think to me, that's another problem too, in which, you know, how, how do you make sense of a variety of identities that you want people to join and you want people to either be sympathetic or be full on participants, but what if they don't? And not because they're necessarily reactionary, but because... Mm-hmm. They have no interest. And is that false conscious, things like that? I mean, that's still something I've been thinking about in the realm of both theory as well as just thinking about different groups that do announce themselves as radical and liberatory, but yet, you know, are still falling under certain kinds of frameworks that are, you know, equally coercive. I feel like that's one of the major challenges that we have in trying to build alternative dynamics that undermine mm-hmm. structural power, that liberation's a big word, but mm-hmm. I do think that we kind of see the the situation for what it is and we know that like we can, it cannot be any longer and mm-hmm. it has been for so long mm-hmm. and like ul- ultimately the struggle against hierarchy and oppression and all the variations of those has been if you start learning about structures versus individual struggle versus mm-hmm. structural struggle mm-hmm. you can kind of identify that you have like shared interests with other people that share your oppression mm-hmm. or share your social position or identity is this going to continue forever maybe and then to mm-hmm. me it's like with the people that I don't think everyone's going to, like, join in or pick up arms Mm -hmm. or get involved in the ways we might define movement building today. I kind of think about it as, like, you know, we have a lot of focus on building mass movements and mass struggle. And certainly it will take a lot of participation and effort um, and structural self-collective defense because whatever we do build, the problem is they tear it down. Mm -hmm. It's not that we can't build alternatives. Mm -hmm. It's that when we build alternatives... And for example, like Proyecto Jardin um, mm-hmm. in East LA, um, you know, fighting to maintain community organizing mm-hmm. over their garden space that sure. White Memorial is trying to evict them from. Just like it's not for lack of trying that these alternatives don't exist. It's mm-hmm. that they are continuously smashed. I think that does kind of push people to want to find some legitimacy. Mm-hmm. I also think that like there is... You know, there is kind of a difference between building movements for autonomy than Mm -hmm. building movements for legitimacy. And I think that our movements now, there's a ruling ideology, but there's also mechanisms and maybe a bureaucracy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. within that ruling ideology that is constantly watching us and taking our tactics and then using them against us. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's not for lack of tactics, not for lack of trying. Against all the odds and barriers that we have, we are still trying. But it's that they, you know, they have a fully 
organized, well-paid hierarchy mm-hmm, right. to constantly take our ideas and make sure they work against us in the end. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the, 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 an example of that is body cameras. Um, you know, Copwatch was filming mm-hmm. the police right, um, right. to empower community to be able to actually document and interrupt mm-hmm. real-time power dynamics right. with the cops. And then now we have, five years later, you know, we have the police adopting that tactic and neutralizing kind of like that tactic and mm-hmm. using it against us for mm-hmm. mass surveillance. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of... Um, I, if people aren't going to get involved, like, that's okay mm-hmm. as long as they don't get involved against us. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to kind of look at sectors of society and, and see that, like, some people don't want things to change. But if they don't want things to change to the degree that they're going to actually become reactionary mm-hmm. and physically try to stop us, mm-hmm. those are the kind of groups of people that I'm more concerned with because Mm -hmm. I do think that for as much as we search for validity in our methods and tactics, I think, you know, they speak for themselves, like Mm -hmm. the energy of alternative spaces for as much as we really still struggle with addressing abuse and accountability because Mm -hmm. those are symptoms Mm -hmm. of the structure we exist in, Mm -hmm. the alternatives speak for themselves. So, you know, people haven't been, may have not been exposed to them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be automatically against them. Mm. The problem is, you know, the media representation usually. Or, for example, like the military recruits people to be violent for Mm -hmm. the state. Very similarly, being targeted for recruitment by the military, they have a vested interest in joining the resistance. Mm -hmm. And actually, but in terms of like a hierarchy of violence and a hegemony of violence, and which violence is seen as like legitimate... The fact that we're like losing so many people to these institutions when they already have an interest in a resistance, mm-hmm. and so if it's like a, uh, a co-opting, yeah, in a way. constantly mm-hmm. co-opting, mm-hmm. which I don't really know how many times because I feel like I'm always talking about co-optation, mm-hmm. but and I don't know if it's easier when we do look for validity from the media or trying to integrate our movements into existing frameworks of power, mm-hmm. but. You know, they have a well-oiled machine to, mm-hmm. co-op, right. to co-opt us. Yeah, the resources and all that, yeah. I think, well, the, there was a particular point that you made that I think was interesting because I am still thinking about certain insurgent movements and how people respond to them. Um, I think you said it was between autonomy and, was it liberation? Was that between the, autonomy and, like, seeking autonomy versus seeking legitimacy. Legitimacy, there we go, okay. And, see, and, and I think that that's where a particular struggle with certain insurgent movements do kind of face because a lot of the sort of groups that the insurgent groups sort of more or less represent, you know, are both, of course, seeking um, legitimacy, but yet the groups that are supposedly being spoken for also just sort of want autonomy as well. And I guess the tricky question is, at what point are they, you know, the groups that are smashed between the insurgent group and the police, if they are, if they are seeking just autonomy, and then then everything is left alone. I mean, granted, you'll either have a quasi state from the insurgent group, or you'll have a full full fledged state from the police. I guess the question becomes: Do you think they're going to be somehow more inclined to do reactionary things, or or do you think that it's possible that it is just for autonomy and they're fine for what it is. And then, but because of that, then does it just legitimize a potential threat of violence, either from the state or from quasi-state of the insurgent group? Between legitimacy and autonomy, if we are positioning those as like a spectrum Mm -hmm. that I feel a lot of times movements are a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. Uprisings in particular, they're pretty autonomous, but then they quickly lean under the control of an organization. Mm -hmm. If a group is struggling for autonomy, 
if you succeed in dismantling the power structure, which is this huge if, right? Because mm-hmm. all the components that will take to do that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there should be no need to like mm-hmm. have any type of overarching structure. Because now that you have autonomy, you would have to purposely create structures for others mm-hmm. versus creating a structure for yourself right. and then you know branching it out. And it, for me, mutual aid is the is the biggest olive branch in terms of restructuring social relations yeah. and restructuring resources. You might have to create within your autonomous practice, a means of defending your practice, of defending your community and defending whatever structure you yourself are trying to create in order to have a liberatory space, an autonomous space informed by the participation of the people who who are participating in that space in terms of defending yourself from the reformation of a, of another state or of uh, reactionaries or of any kind of reformation of the military because we see like a lot of times when states fail there's like a military coup because the military is kind of like well organized arm of the of the state itself um, that doesn't necessarily go away immediately so it's how you know it's about how do you organize you can have a a variety of different autonomous communities that might have their own structure but kind of collaborate together to create a structure or an organization or a voluntary militancy but to to defend the community and and to defend autonomy i think is probably necessary if you're looking for legitimacy I feel like you're going to build a structure and then you're going to need people to adapt to that structure mm-hmm. if the framework you're going by is legitimacy. Yeah. So then that to me, that would be a threat exactly. to some degree. There's a difference between legitimacy as a tactic versus mm-hmm. legitimacy as the goal or the mm-hmm. framework that you're using. If you want to agitate the elections and you're going to put forward a candidate, that candidate should know that they are not the end all be all of the movement. Mm-hmm. You know, they are a tactic. They should mm-hmm. be willing once they're in power to do stuff that agitates that space, whatever, mm-hmm. that hierarchy to win gains for the movement mm-hmm. versus the other way around is once someone gets in a position, the movement makes concessions and agitates to get that person more power mm-hmm. or more legitimacy. Mm-hmm. So it's like even now, like, I mean, an example would be Syriza, right? Mm-hmm. Like people were really, really stoked about it. Mm-hmm. It became this, like, the the leftist cry heard around the world. Right, like, right. we're going to finally... in Europe, yeah, leftist revival in Europe, things like that, yeah. Right, we're finally going to have a majority and we're going to finally do something. And even if they couldn't achieve what they wanted to achieve, they had enough people to severely agitate and, to some extent, challenge the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the arena they were in, which was mainstream politics, mm-hmm. and they chose not to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, to them, that wasn't a tactic. That was their goal. Mm-hmm. And they were afraid of losing their position once they gained it. Mm-hmm. So for any anybody, any insurgent group or any group that is going to dabble in the mainstream electoral sphere, it should be a tactic and you shouldn't be afraid of losing that power. You should want to dismantle that power is mm-hmm. how I look at it. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's important because it does have me think about, like I said, in, in Nepal at the end of the Civil War, which was more or less initiated by the Maoists and then in 2008 being participants of the parliamentary system. But then but they also lost power quite significantly from 2008 till now because they're no longer and they haven't been a majority, um, like I said before, in parliament. But yet it seemed that power was was perhaps a little bit more important than whatever sort of goals they may have had in mind when they began or initiated the, the conflict in 1996. And so it, it reminds me of that a great deal. And then even the three sort of big leftist governments in, in Latin America, too, a lot of those leaders were still dealing with a certain kind of structure that had been there for for years. I mean, Venezuela is, a, is pretty much a petrol state, and 
Chavez, I more or less tried to do something with that revenue, but it wasn't anything that was necessarily radical. It was just potentially redistributing wealth. It wasn't as if the oil specter haunting Venezuela was something that was, you know, that that wasn't acknowledged. And then everywhere else, both Ecuador and Bolivia, they both also have resources that could be tapped into as well as, again, a sort of being able to be hegemonic and as well as incorporating whether in Ecuador invest foreign investments or in Bolivia in so-called native or indigenous investment, not by indigenous peoples, but just by the sort of bourgeois in Bolivia to help fund for social programs and things like that. So there's that kind of issue where you do have a kind of potential space of whether it's it's left wing or or more egalitarian or whatnot, but yet still subsumed by by bigger things, so to speak. Do you think that they're already just bought into a structure and they're now the head of this structure and so they are limited by the structure, so they have to move through the mechanisms and the bureaucracy that the structure creates? Or as heads of state, do you think they can just be like... I mean, I guess I don't really understand, but <laughs> can they just create alternative ways of organizing uh, that's gonna from be their position? Yeah, no, that's that'll be tough, especially um, especially in the case of Venezuela and Ecuador, because they're oil-producing countries and they have to deal with the, the geopolitics of oil. Right. So and, there's there's that. <laughs> and once you're a head of state, I feel like if you do something all sweeping, you know, you're very quickly labeled a dictator, mm-hmm. especially if you're a non-intentionally capitalist. Because I feel like they still participate in capitalism. Oh, absolutely, to some yeah. Degree, no, there's, no, there's no doubt. But <laughs> ideologically, they say we're trying to get away from capitalism, yeah. which I think now is a large tactic about of of like new left electoral mm-hmm. parties. Is is we're we're against capitalism, you know, theoretically. So they all become social democrats or <laughs> I mean that's that appears to be <laughs> what's happening. I mean that's controversial to say. I mean even here right now with this election mm-hmm. right, <laughs> that right, we right. have election going year, on, yeah. there's like the whole binary about you know, are we supposed to ignore it mm-hmm. or are we supposed to participate in it? Mm-hmm. Like how are we accountable to the people that aren't radicalized? Mm-hmm. And that's the hegemonic process that I think that Gramsci and even Leclerc are trying to take into account because for, like I said, for, for Gramsci, you know, take seriously culture, take seriously people's own thinkings of the world um, and not immediately become a sort of vanguard and say, well, you got to succumb to it. And because this is the this is the right road to, to, to revolution, to freedom, to liberation, however you want to frame it. Mm-hmm. And then for, for Leclerc, it's like, well, you have all of these different people supporting this kind of weird amalgamation of right-left politics of Peronism and, and, and populism more generally. And, you know, they may not be fully fascistic, but, they ne- but they're not fully capitalist either. And yet somehow they're able to find a way into to, again, like you're talking about legitimacy, where radicalized or not, they're still, again, participating and trying to make hegemonic some mm-hmm. kind of, of political framework or political um, ideology or, or a person such as the, the three heads of state that we just spoke about. And again, that's still the tricky thing because to me it still also extends to like insurgent groups where they have taken up arms and, have, and are, are trying to sort of, you know, win the so-called hearts and minds and things like that. And to me, that's the trickiest and most difficult thing because we can consider, okay, people are going to have different ways of thinking about the world or that's because they've lived under false consciousness because capitalism has dictated this other way or 
perhaps they have radicalized and how whatever radicalized may mean and they have been able to sort of detach themselves from capitalism insofar as conceptually or, or theoretically mm-hmm. but yet still have to participate in it because like you said earlier it's like well we want to bring this person to the forefront for legitimacy and hegemony but yet they have power and now it got all screwed up and like you said the social movements themselves are still trying to you know they've been buttress all of the work all over again they achieved a goal but then they have to sort of continue the cycle. Right. Well, I think that's, if your goal is hegemony, a lot of people would say that you would work within the hegemony to get to a place Mm -hmm. of hegemony. So it's about positionality, getting Mm -hmm. a position within the structure and then changing the structure from within Mm -hmm. or -hmm. or whatever. So for me, like, it's like a situation where you can change positions as much as possible, but that doesn't change the structure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like, the issue with social movements is that, and this is like, I feel like this is absolutist to say, but if all, all our social movements will work for autonomy or will work for reform, mm-hmm. and no matter what, when election season comes around, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the social movement is now working for electoralism. Mm-hmm. Even if there are people that are like, well, I won't vote for this person because look at all their issues, mm-hmm. that person's going to turn around and look at that and be like, let me make policy reform out of this. Mm-hmm. Or at least a platform. They won't actually make Yeah, platform. Reform. Yeah, I know that bit sounds more. Yeah, it sounds right. Right, yeah. right. So it's just like, I feel like when people say you can, you can do both, you know, you can support electoralism and support social movements, to me, it ignores the fact that electoralism works against social movements mm-hmm. to strip them of their own power, mm-hmm. of, of people power, of populism, mm-hmm. and to consolidate that power into a position, which is probably a hegemonic practice at mm-hmm. this point yeah. in terms of consolidating yeah. power, yeah. consolidating nation state, mm-hmm. consolidating global power election mm-hmm. right, <laughs> that right. we have going year, on. Yeah. There's like the whole binary about, you know, are we supposed to ignore it mm-hmm. or are we supposed to participate in it mm-hmm. like how are we accountable to the people that aren't radicalized mm-hmm. and that's the hegemonic process that i think that gramsci and even lacla are trying to take into account because for like i said for for gramsci you know take seriously culture take seriously people's own thinkings of the world um and not immediately become a sort of vanguard and say well you got to succumb to it and because this is the this is the right road to to, to revolution to freedom to liberation however you want to frame it You've been listening to On Resistance Radio. For the full show, please visit our SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com slash on-resistance. You can find us here next week, same time, 7.30 on Friday, pretty much every Friday except for the first Friday of the month. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.